you know, there's parents that raise their kids the way that they were raised, and then there's parents that raise their kids in spite of the way they were raised, and the opposite of the way that they were raised. And and all I wanted was the opportunity to have my kids be safe and know that they were loved and have them be able to believe in themselves, um, which was almost the exact opposite of what I felt. And I feel like that bad situation that we were in was only the opportunity to allow that to happen, right? Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is David Richman. He's the author of Cycle of Lives, 15 People's Stories, 5,000 Miles, and a Journey Through the Emotional Chaos of Cancer. Welcome, David. Well, hello, Ronit. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Yes, my pleasure, really. I'm really excited. Thank you. Yes. So, David, you are an endurance athlete, and I'm I'm curious when you became an endurance athlete. <laughs> uh, it's funny because I never set out to become an endurance athlete. Um, what happened was, jeez, uh, I, I woke up one day and I realized that Parts of my life were really great. I had a great career and I had two beautiful young four-year-old twins, a boy and a girl, and I had some good friends. And then I looked at my other side of the coin and said, my other side of the coin is really not pretty. I was uh, overweight. I was at least a pack a day smoker. And most importantly, I was in a exceptionally violent and brutal relationship with an alcoholic. And, um, I had to get me and my kids out of there and I did. And when, um, I had a minute to breathe, I looked in the mirror and said, you know, who do you want to be? And I said, well, I don't want to be a smoker and I don't want to be overweight and I don't want to die early. So, um, so I might as well start running because you kind of can't be a runner and smoke. So I went out, I was maybe in my late thirties and I went out and ran um, like a mile, which basically killed me. And then <laughs> <laughs> was, so yeah. Had you, had you run, like when was the last time you'd run for exercise? I had run across the street to make a light once or twice, <laughs> but yeah, that was about it. Um, uh-huh. yeah, I did like some activities, you know, like wakeboarding, snowboarding, that kind of stuff. But, mm-hmm. but I, I never was an athlete. I never, never was athletic, at least not in my adult life. Uh huh. You hadn't considered yourself someone who was athletic. No, not not even yeah. not even remotely. And so I, I literally ran a mile, um, uh, and and couldn't walk for three days. And then I ran a couple of more miles, and then I ran a five k, and then I did a ten k, and then I did a little sprint triathlon. And then I said to my, I looked in the mirror and I said, "Do you think you could do an Ironman?" And I'm mm-hmm. just like, "Whatever." So. I trained for and completed an Ironman about nine months after I stopped smoking. And I just continued to do that to say, um, you know, what's the most I can get out of myself. And that was kind of like a journey of transformation. I don't know, maybe self-empowerment because it kind of felt like um, I was living my life to please others and to Mm -hmm. always try to do things for other people, which isn't always bad, but I never really did things for myself. So I just said, well, who do you want to be? And 
And when nobody's looking and nobody really cares, you know, what, what do you want to be proud of? What, mm -hmm. what are you trying to get out of this world? So I said, well, let's see what I can do. So since then I've done like 15 Ironmans. I've biked across the country. I've run four straight marathons. I did 85 miles in the Mexican heat, uh, hmm. running up, up the coast of Mexico to raise money for cancer research. So I've just kind of, evolved into somebody who likes doing endurance athletics it's good mm -hmm. for the body but it's really really good for the mind as well do you ever feel like uh you have to do your next event within a certain time frame or else yeah that's a good question Ronnie. i i do push myself and i always have these goals like oh i want to do x under so amount of time or i want to do x distance and what whatever amount of time or whatever but I kind of find that that just helps frame my training. Um, mm. I, I don't, you know, I learned really early on that when you're not at the front of the pack, nobody's really watching, right? Nobody really cares. So I'm not going to finish maybe where I want to, but I'm going to finish ahead of that person that never started. So, right. right. So who cares kind of when I finish? And honestly, nobody's ever said, oh, you did an Ironman. Uh, what was your time? You know, they just go, wow, you did an Ironman? Right. You know, and, right. and when I go, when, when I say I ran, you know, 105 miles from Santa Barbara to Manhattan Beach, they didn't say how long did it take. They were like, you did that without stopping? Like, what? Mm -hmm. So I don't really have like goals that I try to push myself to other than putting something on the calendar so that I stay motivated, I stay focused, mm -hmm. I stay trained. And usually so that there's something that will push me to accomplish a little bit more. You've done this across America journey. And we're going to talk about that. And you've interviewed these people about their relationships with cancer, but you have a personal history with cancer and how far into your life and this new you with fitness and endurance races, did your life get affected by cancer? Let's see. I was a few years into this, uh, kind of transformation of myself from somebody who was looking to please others to somebody who was worried about themselves a little bit more. And that, so I started doing these more and more and it just kind of became part of who I was about like two or three years in, I got a call. I was on a, a snowboarding trip with my kids and I got a call from my sister who said she had uh, been diagnosed with brain cancer and it was pretty, severe form of brain cancer. And um, fortunately, she was made a, a, a board study. So she got a lot of extra attention during that the time period between when she was diagnosed and when she died. We got to have a lot of time together and have a lot of conversations. But really where it started to click into me was uh, near the end of her, her journey, she was not doing well physically. And she said to me, hey, I'm going to go to do this, this, uh, this Relay for Life. It's like a thing that the American Cancer Society does where you, you're out on a track for 24 hours walking in support of people that are fighting cancer, raise money and whatever. And she said, hey, I'm going to be out on that field for the whole 24 hours cheering on the June buggies. That was the team. My, my sister's name was June. Um, that was the team that was there to support her. And I said, well, geez you're in pretty bad shape. If you're going to mm -hmm. be out there for 24 hours, I'll, I'll run the whole 24 hours. 
<laughs> so we made this deal, right? Because that's because that's a very um, predictable thing someone would say. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's like a really surprise. Well, Had you ever done that? No, 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 no. I'd never run twenty four hours. No way. Not even close. <laughs> and so I said, but but I'm thinking she, what she was going to do is just as hard, right? So um, unfortunately, she died like literally like three days before the event. So she didn't get to be out there for the whole twenty four hours. But but I did, and. When I was out there, I, I, it just clicked. Uh, it clicked with me, Remy, that people are really open. It didn't click right away, but over time, I kind of figured it out. That people were really good about dealing with the tasks of cancer. You know, like, how do I navigate the medical system? How do I get my kids fed? You know, how am I going to get time off of work? That kind of stuff. But they just didn't talk about the emotions. And I was the same way, right? I didn't. I didn't talk about the emotions that I was going through. I was just worried about how do I raise money and how do we support people and blah, 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 blah. But I didn't have this kind of emotional journey. And as I started to do more and more fundraisers after she died to thank the cancer center that took care of her, um, I started to realize that this theme of people not talking kind of became way more prevalent. It didn't matter if they were a caregiver or survivor or loved one or something so so did did doing that kind of event did running for 24 hours right after she died did that give you what you thought it might give you um internally yes um ex externally probably not um you know it's a little um Side note to why yes internally is is my kids joined me. I, my kids at that time were now nine, right? They were, they were, so uh, they joined me, and they they were really they took it really personal. If you can imagine, I know a lot of your listeners have kids. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have kids, so they were nine years old, and they did they ran thirty and thirty one miles during that twenty four hours, and they talked to people and they put their hands on people's shoulders that were crying. It was it was unbelievably emotional and cathartic for me that I could have two people that were close to me that really cared, you mm-hmm. know, and they cared about others. And so it did give me a chance to, I don't know if I had a process, but at least recognize the loss and at mm-hmm. least recognize that, you know, I, I, I write in the book that, that we were, we were all running circles around the, uh, or walking circles around the track, but we were navigating a lot more than, you know, just, just a quarter of a mile where, you know, so I think that, yes, that not such a short answer to your question, but it, it, I mean, I got, I got to, I got to at least understand, maybe I just didn't deeply process it. I think, but, but at least I got to recognize that, that those things were important. Mm-hmm. Had you and your sister been close before she got sick? Uh, we were very close growing up. Um, we had a, a you know, wacky childhood, as I'm sure you, and of course you did, but. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I don't know much about your background, but something, something about your approach and knowing that you were also in this very unhealthy and I guess I could say, well, toxic and abusive relationship, um, it, you know, your, your first marriage gave me sort of a sense that you may have had and the fact that you were smoking a lot like it just gave me a sense of maybe it had not been so easy for you growing up yeah it wasn't that easy now 
you know, I always like to tell people relative. Yeah. You can always say we're easier or difficult, but in absolute terms, yeah, it was difficult. I had a mom who had her first kid at eight at 18. Uh, my, my dad or got married when she was 18, first kid at 19. My dad had his first kid at 57. So they were 38 years apart. And I quickly found out that my dad was, and he was an old guy. He wasn't like an old 58 year old. I mean, a young 58 year old back Mm -hmm. then he was an Mm -hmm. old 58 year old. So he was kind of like too old, wonderful man, but just too old for kids. And my mom, um, loved kids well, all but her own. Like she, she just didn't know how to be a mom, mm-hmm. didn't like being a mom. And so um, my sister and I definitely leaned on each other through our childhood. Um, uh, and, and so, yeah, we were close. We went through periods of being close and not close. Um, one of the things that I did that was bad as a kid was I, I allowed my mom to let me join in on picking on my sister. Mm-hmm. It was a way to get get her to stop picking on me. And when I saw uh, early on, I was about 17 or 18, and my sister had a wonderful boyfriend, and she's a great job, and she's getting a college education. She's, she's so happy. But I didn't want to kind of – I wanted to let her have her own space to build her beautiful life. And so there were times when we were close and times when we were distant. Um, but never uh, – not animosity there's no issues between us but just we were living our own lives sometimes they intersected more than others but certainly um when she uh, got sick well actually when when she had kids when i had kids we were closer but when she got sick we got really close Mm -hmm. and when did you decide that you needed to learn more about how people were processing cancer on this emotional level you know, that's a good question, Rumi. I think, look, when I was doing these events and, and I thought to myself, every single person I talked to, it, it's like the one thing they don't want to talk about is the emotions that they're going through. And, and I'll, I'll tell you a, a super quick story. It's totally unrelated, but super quick. I was running a, a big organization within the financial services arena in 2008 and nine during the financial crisis. And I had one of my advisors um, jump off the building Mm. and it was unbelievably traumatic, right? And I had maybe 75 employees at my, at my site. And one of the things that I thought I needed to do was to walk around and talk to everybody one-on-one. We couldn't bring in a grief counselor like overnight, right? It was a few days later. And I thought I'm going to talk to people because how are they going to know how to process the emotions around seeing somebody that they love and somebody that was so young and had a family and young kids do that. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you, Rooney, it was, it was the most wonderful and the most horrible day ever. I couldn't, I literally, every single office that I went into when I started to talk to people, every single one had a story about suicide. Every single one of them a parent, a friend, a childhood friend, a loved one, an ex-boyfriend, an ex-girlfriend, a bubble. And I was just like, what the heck? And who would know? Because unless you start talking about it, and all of these people were like, you know, I've never talked about it because you you don't talk about that stuff. And then it happens, and then you start talking to somebody, and then you bottle it up again. And that happened right around the same time that my sister passed away. And right around the same time that I was dealing with um, 
of running into people at these events who I just saw this one common factor. So it just kind of popped up that I really wanted to embark on that. It took me a few years past that before I, I, I took it seriously and really sat down and started to pencil it out. But the seeds for it were born during that, you know, that, that, that collection of events. And how did you decide that you were going to bike the 5,000 miles while you <laughs> got the book together? Because that's another, you know, another kind of wrinkle. It, it is a wrinkle. And uh, I think subconsciously, uh, I, I wanted, like I had gone really deep with these other people. Right? And, and sometimes it was really traumatic, right? We're really, you know, really cathartic, really transformational them and for me talking to them about really really private things about their trauma and um and i thought to myself i had not really ever done that myself and um i just thought it'd be kind of cool to bike across i always want to run across the country but i don't think i have time for that and and i thought well why don't i bike across the country and you know i just thought i'm gonna meet people along the way i'm gonna you know talk to everybody that I can. And I'm and I, and I said, what better way to meet a lot of the people that I had been talking to for a couple of years than to meet them in person on a bike ride across the country. So I kind of zigzagged California through Texas, up and down the South, down, down the Florida, halfway across Florida and, and over, and then all the way up to New York. And I zigzagged around so I could meet most of these people. So I wanted to meet them. Um, I, I wanted to, talk to as many people along the way to make sure that, that the message that I thought I was going to be able to bring would touch people. And then I also said, uh, maybe it's a way for you to do some kind of deep contemplation about your own issues you never dealt with, with regards to, you know, losing somebody with cancer. So that, 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 you know, luckily my wife supported it and, um, you know, I just, I had the freedom to be able to do it. So, um, so I, I said, well, what the heck? And, and now, now is no better time than the present, right? Right. Were you aware when you, when you set out to do it, to do the trip on the bike, that you yourself hadn't yet maybe completely processed the loss of your sister? Yeah. I, you know, looking back, I like to probably you know, form a better answer to this. The, the, the easy answer is no. Mm-hmm. And it only became apparent as I, I didn't set out to do that. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I didn't set out to say, Ooh, you know, uh, be on a lonely highway for 10 hours pedaling and you're going to, you're going to you know, solve some crap inside. Mm-hmm. I never, I didn't set out to do that. But the crazy thing is that, is that, um, and, and my wife tells me this is so funny, but you know, um, I talked to so many people on the way. It's, it's literally unbelievable how many people I ran into on the way. And, and every one of them had something in common. And, well, they had a couple of things in common. Is, is one, they had all been t- touched by cancer one way or another. Two, they all thought the book was going to be a great idea because they need to learn how to start these conversations because they never dealt with the emotions. They don't know how to talk to other people about the emotions and what they're going through, right? Those were things. And then also the most spectacular people the most interesting, the ones that I thought were like the most craziest stories, they all thought, you mm, know, it's no big deal. Like my story is no big deal. And so, you know, that, and, um, you know, when you're going through something, 
you're just going through it. You're not focused on the fact that it might be something kind of significant. It's just the life you're leading. Mm-hmm. And I and I think I realized, and my and my wife told me, like, dude, everybody you talk to says their story isn't isn't that interesting. And then when they ask you why you're doing this, you go, ah, my story's not that interesting. <laughs> go, Wait a second, maybe I ought to do start thinking about the things that have happened to me and not just slough it off to, I'm not going to deal with it. So mm-hmm. it kind of, it, it kind of just happened. Naturally. Yeah. But it's funny to me that you didn't really, I'm trying to get a sense of this. Did you, when you embarked on the book, when you had this idea for the book and you found the people you wanted to interview, did you have this sort of, you know, shadowy part of yourself that realized you were doing it to kind of heal yourself? Or did you feel that you had already dealt with the loss and you wanted to see how other people dealt with it? Yeah. It's a really good question. And the answer is you just don't know what you know until you know it, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, uh, I didn't know that I married somebody who was exactly my mother until one day I woke up. I knew it. Right. Right. I, I, I'll never forget the conversation. She was screaming at me, you know, drunk. She was like, you didn't marry your mother. And I was like, Oh, you know what? I did. <laughs> right. And so, uh, you know, she don't know what you know till you of know. Of course. It. And I yeah. Think that I didn't go out there to do that, but once, once it hit me, like, uh, you know, David, you're not paying attention to the stuff that you're asking people to pay attention to. Why don't you pay attention to that? And why don't you try to, why don't you try to deal with it? And why don't you try to find out what it meant? And why don't you try to fill in some of the missing puzzle pieces that you refuse to go find? And so mm-hmm. it just, it did kind of just evolve. I, I, yes, maybe there was a tiny piece of me that wanted to see what I would find out there. But um, I actually didn't go. Let me go find this. Right. You know, it just kind of yeah. just kind of happened. And do you do you feel like the grief around cancer once it's excavated or even before is that is it kind of a unique type of grief? Um. Yeah. I mean, my experience has shown that yes, it, it is only because uh, we can't wrap our arms around it so much. Do you know, like. You can kind of put bookends behind a bad childhood. You can put bookends behind um, substance abuse. You can put bookends even around, you know, somebody who dies by suicide. You can put kind of wrap your arms around heart disease. Cancer is another thing, man. It just, it just is, is voodoo. It's dark. It's, it's, you know, one day you, you know, who doesn't know the 95 year old smoker drinker who, who, has never had a bout of cancer in their life. And then the model of, of healthiness who all of a sudden gets pancreatic cancer and dies three months later. Right. Mm. It's just, we can't understand it. And, and emotionally we can't process it. I'll, I'll tell you super quick. One of the book participants is a, it's a wonderful woman. She's 40 years as a top oncologist, at a major institution. And it was so funny during one of our conversations, I said, so really like what made you become uh, like this specialty rather than a surgeon or something else. And she said, well, like everybody else in oncology, part of it is karma. I go, huh? And she goes, oh yeah, we figure the more we do in the cancer community, the less chances that we'll get it. And I'm like, really? <laughs> really? <laughs> and I'm like, wow. you're kidding me. She's like, no. And that's because we can't really wrap our brains around it. So I do think in that sense, it is, um, it's unique. I mean, losses. I'm not going to say it's easy in any way. Tra- trauma isn't easy in any way, right? Um, I don't mean to belittle anything else that anybody else is going through. 
at all. But I think cancer is just something we can't really wrap our mm-hmm. brains around. Yeah, and it seems like there's almost because there it's a lack of control. There seems to be a little bit of sort of that feeling of no rhyme nor reason, and uh, just the feeling of you can yeah. like you. It's arbitrary in some sense, right? No matter what you do, and so maybe that's part of the grief there. Um, yes. Were your interviewees surprised by like? during this this project or during your process they yes the answer is yes they were surprised most of them about how spectacular i found their journeys because they thought their lives were unspectacular mm-hmm. i was surprised by that right um i'm just like i can't believe you're telling me what you're telling me and they're like oh, it's no big deal I'm like, what are you talking about? That is a huge deal. I don't even know how in the world did you deal with that? And then I go deeper and deeper and then they got into it. Um, So that was a surprise. Another surprise was, um, frankly, it was difficult and it pushed away a few of the early participants, but I, I, I asked them to go deep. You know, first of all, I'm, they're real people. It's not people are anonymous in the book, right? They're real people. So I, I wanted it to be real. And I, and I said that, you know, if, if people are going to learn something, they, they need to know the truth and we need to go deep. And so we have to talk about things that we haven't ever talked about. And I think because they knew I was sincere in wanting to bring their stories to light and I wasn't trying to uh, pick their brain for my own benefit, but I was trying to pick their brains for the benefit of the reader. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they were surprised by um, some of the discoveries that they made. Mm-hmm. One of the book participants, he actually became a good friend of mine. And the story in the book is Dominic's story. And we were having these wonderful conversations and the dude just had like this brutal life, just, just some of it self-inflicted, but just a brutal life and just brutal experiences with cancer and with life, and with drugs, blah, 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 and all this stuff. And we were talking, it was really late one he was not having a good time in life. And we were talking about it. And he goes, man, I'm just so afraid to die. And I said to him, uh, Dominic, it's been 40 years. And I think you're actually the opposite. You're kind of afraid to live. I said, you, you, you're, if you don't mind me saying so, your whole life you thought you were going to die. And everything that you did was to kind of make that come true. You, you're afraid to live. And we kind of talked through some of those issues. And he had finally then finally decided, you know what, maybe I need to tell my kids about my past. Maybe I need to talk to them about what, I, what I've done, where my journey's taken. Maybe I should journal. Maybe I should go do some of the things that I need to do. Because you know what? He came to the realization that he was. He was always living as though he was going to die, and he finally decided to live. And unfortunately, he did, he did pass away recently from uh, mesothelioma. But um, I know that he had a profound change in himself because I think partly because of what we discovered during our talks that he, he needed to have a different outlook on, on why he was on this earth. What do you hope that readers will get from this book? So um, what I hope they get out of it is I hope that they can identify with these stories. I hope that, they, um, that they're moved that they evoke emotion in them. But most importantly, and, and I was just talking about this to my wife in, in preparation of talking to you and me. She's like, are you on track with what your goals are? And I said, yeah, my, my goal is to start these conversations. 
to get people get people help, like, like to let people understand what others might be going through, or what they might be going through and haven't dealt with, but what others might be going through, and better equip them to start conversations. Mm-hmm. That that would be that would be great. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's what I hope the reader gets out of it is identifying with with the people and the things they've gone through, being moved by their dealing with or not dealing with the emotions about their journeys and being able to identify with that in such a way that they can start conversations with the people that are around them. Do you feel like the, this journey of yours to write the book and and bring it into the world has changed your memory or approach to the loss of your sister? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I definitely uh, learned that um, you can't mask dealing with things yourself just by getting other people to deal with their their stuff, right? That's not, that's, I mean, it's nice and it feels good to help people through things, but that doesn't help. You got to actually work (laughs) on yourself to to do that. So I've come to peace with some things over that. Do you feel ever like you're... I get the sense that you are someone who is definitely motivated and has your goals and you stick to them, uh, certainly with getting this project into the world and certainly with your, your athletic pursuits. Mm-hmm. Am, am I right in picking up that there's a sense of you in you that you need to keep giving back or that you need to do more? Yeah. I mean, part, part of that really, and, and I'm, you know, it's going to, give into it because you're you're a good question asker. Mm-hmm. But part of that is probably left over from, you know, always thinking I had to do more because, you know, I was told as a kid I'm never gonna amount to anything. And so I think part of that is just constantly trying to prove that I can do more and that I can do more. And I've tried to turn that around to prove it to myself more than prove it to others. Mm-hmm. But um but yeah, I think I think that'll always be a, a, a part of me until it can't be anymore. But um, I think the thing that defines me more than more than anything is is that I I kind of have always thought since the, literally the day I pulled my kids out of that house and and you know started to rebuild my life was I always from that day forward I always thought my best days are still ahead of me. Mm-hmm. So. That means if my besties are ahead of me, then I'm going to keep accomplishing more and more and more. And I kind of get disappointed when I hear people opine too much about the past mm-hmm. or live in the past because I'm like, why aren't you at least in today? Because I'm always thinking what's what's bigger for me down the road. Right? And I might be limited by age or ability or circumstance or whatever, but I'm still always going to be optimistic that there's something better out there. Mm-hmm. That's, I think it's a good way to live. At least it's the way I live. Yeah. And I'm curious about your kids. How old are they now? Oh, my gosh. They're 22. Mm -hmm. Um, They are, one is in Chicago getting his master's in philosophy. He's way smarter than me. The other, (laughs) my daughter, my daughter, she's uh, she's something else. She's actually studying at Cambridge. Oh, wow. In in England. So uh, they both are often doing their stuff and i think if i only gave them one thing i gave them the the thought that you got to set high enough goals because you know 
if you want to accomplish something, you know, great. But if you want to accomplish something great, you got to set your goals way high. Yeah, well, definitely you're an example of that. But also the way that you protected their lives by, you know, their emotional lives and their actual physical lives by getting them out of your early family. Yeah, and it's that that was my, you know, that was a gift to me because, you know, I, yeah, I mean, this is, we're going to a whole other topic for another day, but, you know, there's parents that raise their kids the way that they were raised, and then there's parents that raise their kids in spite of the way they were mm-hmm. raised, and the opposite of the way that they were raised. And, and all I wanted was the opportunity to have my kids be safe and know that they were loved and have them be able to believe in themselves. Um, which was almost the exact opposite of what I felt. And I feel like that bad situation that we were in was only the opportunity to allow that to happen, right? So I was able to give them a safe place. I was able to show them a lot of love and I was able to show them through my own journey that basically started at that point that you can always do more and you can always look forward and you can always set higher goals. So uh, it was a real gift to have kids. It was, it was, I was really fortunate. Mm-hmm. Well, where can where can listeners find out about you and get your book? Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, because that's important. Because <laughs> the, net, the net proceeds from the book, so that each one of the book participants picked a uh, cancer-related charity or another charity to receive their portion of the profits. And I told them that um, that all of the net profits, you know, cost to make the books and ship them and whatever else anything that i would make 100 percent of that we're going to give that to those charities mm-hmm. so um so it's important the more books you sell the more money we raise for these great organizations and they're listed in the book or on my website but you can find me at the cycle of lives.org that's uh, my my website my books are on there including this this one and it just released a couple weeks ago so cycle of lives.org Great. That I will definitely post that in the show notes and also on the landing page for your episode. So people can also just click on it and find you there too. And I'm really glad that you clarified that these different places will get the, some of the donations, which is really great. Um, Yeah, they they will. And the book's available wherever books are sold, you know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Apple, all those places. They can get the ebook or the paperback copy or they can spike directly from me. I've signed quite a few books and sent them out. So the good thing is, is all the money's going going to these great charities, and we can help raise funds and help spread um, education on how to deal with these tough things and entertain people along the way. Mm-hmm. And that's what try to affect them. Definitely, that's like the bonus. Yeah, exactly, David. It was so good to speak with you and to learn all these these parts of your life that I, I didn't expect to learn, and I'm really happy that you were able to share them with me. So, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, you're welcome wouldn't have been that good if you didn't ask such good questions so I appreciate that it's really uh, it's really been a good time so thank you thank you for listening to and then everything changed for more on this episode photos and other episodes you might like please visit atecpodcast.com you can connect with me and learn more about episodes on Facebook Twitter and Instagram also. Just search for my name, Ronit Plank, R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K, and you will find all the updates. If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe and also rate and review so other people can find it. Thank you so much for listening.